Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. We are going to be talking about the power of words this week. First up with legendary rapper Talib Kweli. He is the guy that Jay-Z raps about when it comes to who has the best lyrical prowess uh, in the game. We're going to talk about Talib's new memoir. Then George Saunders is going to stop by. He has won just about every literary award there is. But I think his new book might be his most amazing accomplishment because it's about Russian literature, and yet it is not even a little bit boring. In fact, it's totally fascinating. Can't wait to talk to him. Then we're going to hear some music from Gillette Johnson about that moment when words just seem to completely fail you. The word on the street is that this is going to be a great show. And by the street, I just mean I have a hunch. But it's a strong one. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going so well. I am full of holiday cheer. Oh, yeah. And eggnog. How are you? (laughs) I'm not a nog person, but definitely the cheer, I think. More for me. (laughs) Are you ready to uh, play a little round of station location identification examination? Yes, nog hog. I am. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I uh, give you some clues about a place in America where we are on the radio and you try to figure out where I am talking about. This city is also known as the Big Tomato, Mm. the Big Tomato, and it is the hometown of some fairly uh, august company. LeVar Burton grew up there. Okay. Molly Ringwald grew up there. Uh, There's one more that if I give you this person's name, I think you might get it. But I will, in the spirit of holiday charity, uh-huh. Joan Didion is from this place. Sacramento, California. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the dead giveaway. Sacramento is the big tomato? Because of the many tomato canneries that used to be there. <gasps> We're on KQEI Woo! in Sacramento, a.k.a. The Big Tomato. Hey. So shout out to everyone listening to us there and all over the rest of the country. All right. Speaking of our radio show, should we get to it? Let's do it. All right. From PRX, it's Livewire. 
this week, rapper and activist Talib Kweli. Rappers are nerds about a bunch of things. You know, rappers <laughs> watch Star Wars in the office and, you know, do really nerdy things. And writer George Saunders. I'm very, very sympathetic to anybody who is put off by contemporary art. And I'm very, very eager to say, come on, this tent is really fun. And it's going to answer all the questions that keep you up at night. With music from Gillette Johnson, I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this week's Livewire, hope you're having a happy and uh, restful holiday season. We are resting up right now. We're off. I'm drinking a lot of eggnog. Elena, you're <laughs> laying off the stuff. That's fine, too. <laughs> no. uh, since we are enjoying our week off, we thought we would play an episode for you that we recorded back in February of this year, and uh, we know you're going to enjoy it. Of course, as we do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question, which was, what's your favorite word or phrase we're going to be hearing those answers coming up in just a bit. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is where we like to remind ourselves and the listeners that, of course, good things can also happen. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Oh, okay. This week, we got to go uh, for some great news to Scotland. Where oh, really? Okay. <laughs> to Scotland, where a 33-year-old mother of three named Charlene Leslie uh, pushed, or there's video of her appearing to push, like what looks like a semi-truck delivery truck of milk up a hill during a snowstorm. And uh, the dairy farm, Graham's Family Dairy, was so grateful for her help, although they did encourage all of their customers to never try to do that at home or anywhere else. But they were so grateful they gave her a year's supply of milk for her superwoman heroism. <laughs> well, were one of her kids like under the semi? I mean, that's no. like that's like superhuman strength. She pushed a semi truck up a hill. Well, I mean, speaking of moms, though, she did like such a great mom thing before she went to help the truck. She made sure that she got a babysitter for the kids. Like she dropped off the kids at the oh. neighbors and then ran into the road. And then I think the truck is actually kind of moving on its own accord, but she's just kind of keeping it steady, which is probably a little dangerous. But she just looks like a badass. She looks amazing. <laughs> wow. Speaking of um, doing some good in the world, uh, the best news that I saw this week involved the wardrobe <gasps> of Alex Trebek, uh, the late Jeopardy host, <gasps> which is being donated to an organization called the Doe Fund that provides uh, paid work and housing for uh, people who are coming out of homelessness and other sort of uh, situations. And, you know, if you are trying to get a job and maybe mm -hmm. you haven't had access to a kind of professional looking wardrobe for a while, that can be a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. So a number of these guys that go through this program are going to be wearing Alex Trebek's actual suits from Jeopardy when they go apply for a job. And there is a photo of a couple of the men from this program with Alex Trebek's duds. And it is just the most heartwarming thing you will ever see. And I promise you, they are getting those jobs. Oh, yeah. There's something cosmic. If you show yeah. up in Alex Trebek's actual 
pinstripe suit. Yeah. I'm giving you any job you're applying for, right? That's some fairy dust too. Like even if you, even if right? the people don't know, they'll be able to sense the fabulousness, the professionalism. I mean, because Alex Trebek is, was famously very professional. He got in a car accident once and then just hitched a ride to do Jeopardy that day. He was, he was a super pro. So if you're wearing an Alex Trebek Jeopardy suit, the sky is the limit. Although it might be a little weird when during the job interview, the person being interviewed keeps answering everything in the form of a question. Yeah. But there's just some, you know, institutional memory in those suits <laughs> that just got of stuck in there. So there you go. That is the best news that we've heard all week. All right. Uh, let's get our first guest here onto the house party. He is one of the most highly acclaimed rappers in the world. Uh, he is known for his sharp lyrics and also his activism. Uh, he's worked with, like, everyone, Kanye West, Pharrell Williams. Um, he's half of the hip-hop duo Black Star, along with Most Def. Uh, and he's got a new memoir out. It's called Vibrate Higher, a rap story, which talks about his childhood growing up in Brooklyn um, and his career and, and what it's like to be the rapper that all of the other rappers respect, even if you're not maybe a household name like mm -hmm. a, a Jay-Z. Um, so we're so excited to have him on. Talib Kwali, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the love and the support. <laughs> I really enjoyed uh, this book, Vibrate Higher. And right at the beginning, you have a line in the book that really kind of stopped me. You write, the truth is most rappers are super nerds. Our need to be liked by everybody is why we use rhymes to try to explain what you are going through and ultimately bring you closer to us. Like you start out by immediately demystifying rappers. Like I've never felt like a rappers were more relatable than when I read that line. Well, I got to apologize to all my fellow rappers. I might've just been speaking for myself and I said I was <laughs> sure. speaking on behalf of all the good rappers, but um, you know, maybe there's some rappers that don't feel that way, but I travel in a lot of rapper circles and the best MCs in the world are, are nerds. You know, they, they're, and I guess everyone's a nerd about what they're good at, you mm -hmm. know, but uh -huh. I find that rappers are, rappers are nerds about a bunch of things. You know, rappers <laughs> are watch Star Wars in the office and, you know, do really nerdy things and get really excited about it. I mean, you got to get the lyrics from somewhere, right? I mean, one of the things I love yeah. about your music, Talib, is that you just reference everybody and everything in your songs. Well, I'm a fan of pop culture. Um, my father is a sociology professor, and I pay attention to pop culture. I, I, as I get older, my interests narrow. But, you know, as a young kid, I watch every single thing on television. Um, you know, I would listen to every single song, every, every single genre of music. Everything that came out, I would just consume all of it. Uh, speaking of your parents, um, you talk in this book about being raised uh, with the concept of black cultural nationalism and pan-Africanism. What does that exactly mm -hmm. mean and what did that look like for you as a young man growing up in, in Brooklyn? It meant um, representation. Um, you know, you hear that phrase now, representation matters so often. And I was honored and blessed and privileged as a child to have black representation in my life. And I feel like because of it, it's made me a better man. Having the name Talib uh, Kwali, such a powerful, strong name, seeing African art on the walls, reading about African authors. It wasn't just Black History Month. It was an everyday thing. It was just part of our routine. The fact that my mother worked at a college named after Medgar Evers, and she worked alongside Betty Shabazz, and, and 
understanding that it wasn't just about Malcolm X, but it was also about Betty Shabazz, understanding it wasn't just about Medgar Evers, it was also about Merle Evers. Um, I remember as a kid, my block reminded me of Sesame Street. Like Sesame mm-hmm. Street's a national show, at this point mm-hmm. an international show, um, but that it looked like my block. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it felt like that. And, and the inner city doesn't come without problems, but um, we had problems, you know, it's roaches, roaches and rats and, you know, homelessness and the crack epidemic and all these things were affecting my, my childhood, but it was a strong sense of community. Um, and for me, black cultural nationalism is not about at all uh, segregation or separating from white people, but it's about gaining equity. It's about cooperative economics, about doing what other communities who are privileged to not be brought over here as slaves. Um, those other communities, immigrant communities uh, built up by supporting each other's businesses, you know, spending dollars with each other. And the black community has not done that in the way that other communities ha- have had for a lot of reasons. Um, but black cultural nationalism sort of tries to get people in that headspace so that we could not be dependent on white people in the government, but really be dependent on ourselves. Uh, we're talking to Talib Kweli here on the Livewire House Party. His book is Vibrate Higher, a rap story. Uh, were you confident when you set about to write this book that it was going to be good? Because like you're a, you're a writer, you write music, you've done experimental theater, mm-hmm. but that's different than a memoir. You're right. Um, I'm very nervous about the reception of this book. Mm. Um, I'm a very confident MC. Um, I'm better than most rappers. And in what I do, I'm very, very confident about my skill level in hip hop. And that's part of the hip hop thing, right? That's part of the um, great MC thing is the being, being able to brag about your skills. I don't have that same confidence in in the literary world, and I, I I'm looking at my peers in this world now, and 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 the the, the sh- shoulders that I'm standing on, and I'm like, wow, I hope people like the book. It took me about four or five years to really complete it. Wow! But really, it was it was more like three years. The last two were me hemming and hawing and not turning it into the publisher mm. because I was nervous about how it'd be received, and then um. It's a lot of personal stuff in there too. So yeah. it's like, should I share this? Are these people going to be upset at me? Um, for anyone's listening, my book doesn't have the tea. It's not juicy with <laughs> gossip, but it's certainly, um, you know, personal stuff in there. And um, that that made me nervous. It's so upfront too. Like it has like this this oh, amazing directness. And it's not that you're indirect in your albums and your work as a hip hop artist, but um, it just has this frankness that doesn't really connote lyricism in this way that is just so wonderful. The scenes just come alive, like Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s. Oh, wow. That's a huge compliment. I really appreciate that. And that's what you just said is what I was trying to convey is that this book is not just about me. Um, it's about... Brooklyn in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's about the raucous era. It's about a certain type of hip hop. It's about all of these things. And I'm proud of the fact that in the academic space, in the literary space, I don't think we've seen some of the things that I've talked about. I don't think we've seen people talk about Dilla and Mad Lib and, 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 and Kanye West and Yasin Bey mm-hmm. in this way. And so I'm proud to, to be able to bring their stories to life as well. We got to take a real quick break, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking to Talib Kweli. His latest book is Vibrate Higher, a rap story. Stay with us. This is the Livewire House Party. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. 
Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to Talib Kweli, uh, the hip-hop artist and writer. He's got a book out, Vibrate Higher, a rap story. One of the things, uh, Talib, that I've been really interested to follow in your career over the last, I don't know, 10 years is the business model that you've embraced as an artist. Uh, You have a track Mm -hmm. off of one of your mixtapes, We Run This Volume 7, and it's like the last track is called like speaking about career where it's just you talking. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually I think Kanye also did a version of this on last call where it's just an artist mm-hmm. talking about their experience of trying to make it in this business and then also make it work for them. What is the version of, 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 of hip hop business that you've embraced so that you can keep doing this for your job? Um, for me, I think it's about learning when it was time for me to leave the music industry and build an industry around myself. And for me to figure out how to stop competing with other rappers and compete with myself. Um, I had a very fierce competitive spirit and I think it served me well in the industry. Um, I put myself, in my mind, I would had to be better than every rapper. I had to compete with every rapper. And so I listened to every album. I knew every hit song. I paid attention to the radio. I was very focused. I knew every trend. I knew every label, every artist, And um, that worked for a number of years. But when I started approaching 40, I had to start focusing more on myself and making sure that I would be able to eat and I'd be able to make a living regardless of what happened in the music business. The music business collapsed around Mm. me. When I was Mm -hmm. um, first starting, every budget was 300, 400, 500,000 for an album or a video. Millions of dollars were spending on everything. I remember uh, I just did Jimmy Fallon's show and he said, man, when I was hanging out with you, you had the, you had the most beautiful watch I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. You had this beautiful Louis Vuitton watch. And I was like, I didn't have no Louis Vuitton watch. And I was like, I, I, did, have, <laughs> I did have a beautiful watch. <laughs> I forgot about it. I was like, I was doing all this extravagant rapper stuff. You know, I was buying expensive watches and expensive sunglasses mm-hmm. and stuff like this to go to nightclubs. And then I would lose the stuff. Oh. Um, you know, 
just the amount of money and the amount of everything is like that. I, I have to give a props to like uh, LP mm. from Run the Jewels, yeah. Killer Mike, but LP in particular because he started on Raucous when I started on Raucous. But while I was living this like rapper life and like getting major deals and spending all this money, he was building an independent musical empire. And so I, I talk about this in the book, God Bless Ryan Leslie, who is also an artist who's like that. He built a website for me, qualityclub.com. And um, that's when I really understood that I could do it myself. I put out the Gravitas album. Um, it was the first album that was completely uh, self-distributed by myself. And I did, I, I did okay, just off record sales. I've always in the past had to wait for the record label to get their money first. So the idea that I just put something out and the money would come right back in my pocket immediately, that was foreign to me at the time. And, um, yeah. and I've been moving in a more independent direction since. One of the things you write about in this book is that, you know, uh, Jay-Z name-checked you uh, in a song. He said, if skills sold truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib Kweli. And how that name-check did more PR work for you then, you know, or the same amount as years of you out there grinding. Um, yeah. how, how do you feel about your place in the hip hop universe, I guess, is the real question. I feel good that Jay-Z saying my name was validation for me. I, and it made me feel like if I was confused about my place in hip hop, well, then this helped out. Um, that happened in 2004 when Jay-Z said that in Moment of Clarity. In 2004, Kanye West... And 50 Cent were the biggest things in the rap game. 50 Cent, when he did an interview for Double XL, he was the editor for one month. They asked him who he wanted to interview. He could interview anybody. They'll go get him. He wanted to interview me. Mm -hmm. um, Kanye West was someone who I had taken on tour. So I watched these artists who respected me so much, love what I do. I inspire these guys. And then they come out and they make way more money than me. What am I doing wrong? And then Jay-Z said that lyric. And it's like, wow. Maybe if I rapped more about money, <laughs> I'd have a lot more money. You manifest it? Right, right. Because Jay-Z definitely did that. But then what you just said is correct, right? You, you manifest it. Well, what is it that I rapped about all the time? I rapped about cultural nationalism. I rapped about, like I said, I want to be better than every rapper. Well, I achieved that. So it's like, I didn't have the money, but I did. I manifested exactly what, and that was a big lesson for me. Right. Words are power. Very powerful. Yeah, I mean, you are really known for your lyrics, and you write in this book that you really have always tried to hold yourself to a really high lyrical standard, uh, regardless of what the trends are. I mean, right now, a lot of the hip-hop that's very popular is very lyrically spare. Mm. I mean, what's your relationship with the very popular hip-hop of the moment that is much less lyric-heavy than the stuff that you do? I mean, I've, I learn from wherever I can learn from. What I have learned from artists that are not as lyrical... Um, whether it's a, you know, a young thug or an old dirty bastard or a young dude that passes away like Juice mm -hmm. World or, mm -hmm. you know, st stuff like that. That's more about vibing. I, old Dirty, if he was around, I got to qualify that, would be upset if I said he wasn't <laughs> lyrical. What I've learned is to appreciate the musicality of letting go of the lyrics. Now, I, as, as a lyricist, I need that. Um, Slum Village, Jay Dillard's group. Their first album was called Fantastic Volume One. And Jay Dill is like our godfather. And me, Most Def, The Roots Common, you know, Erica, we were all worshiping at the feet of Dilla and listening to Slum Village album over and over again. And on that, on that first album, they have a song called Fantastic. And the song is like a minute long. And the lyrics are, we say fan, ta, so what? You say, huh? You know, it's dash. 
So, it's for y'all to dance to it slow because it's fantastic. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but, but I love it. And yeah. it, it taught me to be more loose with my words and just be more funky and just feel the vibe. And as someone who just focused on every lyric has to be enunciated and said perfectly, it was good for me to learn that lyric. So, the, the takeaway from that is I don't have any problem with mumble rap or non-lyrical rap. They can't do what I do at all. Mm-hmm. And so, all I can do is just learn from that mm-hmm. and, and listen to it and you know, and catch the vibe. Yeah, which is uh, very uh, related to the title of this book, Vibrate Higher, a rap story. It's Talib Kweli's new book. It's amazing. Got to go out and get it. Talib, thank you so much for coming on the Live Wire House Party, man. We really appreciate you. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Talib Kweli right here on the Live Wire House Party. His new memoir is Vibrate Higher, a rap story. Hey, special thanks this episode to Suzanne and Matt Dixon of Portland, Oregon. Suzanne and Matt are part of the Livewire member community and are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which we are extremely thankful for because it's genuinely how we are able to keep Livewire going. So a huge thanks this week to Suzanne and Matt for supporting the show. This is the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. As we like to do each week, we asked the Live Wire listeners a question. We asked them, what is your favorite word or phrase? Because we're talking a lot about word mm-hmm. usage and language and writing this week on the show. Uh, what, what are the listeners saying? Are there favorite words or phrases, Elena? Ah, here's one from Tracy. Tracy says, my four-year-old's preschool teacher taught her the phrase, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And that has been my favorite parenting phrase during the pandemic. (laughs) Those are some words of wisdom right there. You get, what is it again? You get what you get. This is a four-year-old who's being told this. Listen up, adults. You get what you get (laughs) and you don't get upset. (laughs) Like, I don't know how we we move away from that, but I do think that it is important sometimes to enjoy the things that you receive. (laughs) Yeah. From the mouth of babes or the mouth of the person teaching the babes. Some sage wisdom. Yeah. All right. What's another word or phrase that our listeners really like? Here's the classic from Tammy. Tammy's favorite phrase, time for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that uh, there are many days during the pandemic where dinner is a highlight. Like I'll start thinking about dinner at about 8 a.m. Yeah. You know? You know what I do? Because David and I are are together all day long, every day. I save words for dinner. So if I think of something to say to him, rather than yell it downstairs, I'm like, oh, that's going in the dinner bank. So I really look forward to I don't know if he looks forward to it anymore, but... I have totally been at that point in a relationship where you're like, oh, that's going to be good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This will kill. This will kill like eight minutes. This is gonna... of the dinner conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, love. Yeah. Exciting and new. <sighs> okay. Uh, what's another word or phrase? Uh, this is Alice's favorite phrase, and it comes from Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona. You minion are too saucy. So I guess <laughs> at dinner, you could say that to your partner or you could say it to like your spaghetti. You could say either, either yeah. minions are too saucy. <laughs> I like that a lot. Although depending on who you're talking to, they may think you're talking about those little yellow 
fire oh, hydrant looking right. guys. The minions. You minions. They've really, I would say they've probably at this point maybe replaced the Shakespearean notion oh. in the popular consciousness. Now I want to see two gentlemen of Verona done only with minions. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> you would totally watch that. <laughs> All right. This is the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. Uh, speaking of words, uh, our next guest is, in my opinion, maybe the best writer of words <laughs> out there at the moment. You're a close second, Elena. Oh, okay? thanks. I want you to know that. <laughs> but uh, this guy's pretty amazing. His last book, Lincoln and the Bardo, won the Booker Prize. Uh, he also teaches creative writing at Syracuse University in this program that, I mean, like thousands of people apply for this mm-hmm. every year, Elena, right? And it's like seven people get in or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy low acceptance rate. It's a very selective it's very, school. very exclusive. Um, the good news is, though, for all of us who will probably never get into this class, is his latest book kind of gives you a peek into what it would be like to be one of his students. Uh, the book is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, uh, and it's taken from a class on Russian short stories that George Saunders has been teaching for years, and it is just such a great read. You know, I heard Russian literature, uh, I don't know, is this going to be very engaging for me? And I just couldn't put this book down. Uh, So we're so excited to have him on the show. Let's welcome George Saunders to the Live Wire House Party. It's great to be here, sort of here, virtually here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, last time that we spoke, it was uh, when you were on tour with Lincoln and the Bardo, which was obviously a huge hit. It was a uh, bestseller. It it, uh, won a Booker Prize. Um, This new book of yours, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, is really... Uh, it's really different. Um, it's it's you breaking down Russian short stories to kind of explore what makes a story work. Uh, when did you decide that you wanted this to be your follow-up book? Uh, you know, like almost everything I do, it was just kind of ad hoc. I, I was uh, teaching up at Syracuse for the first time in a year, and I was loving it, and uh, came out of a class and was like, you know what? Someday I should kind of like pay tribute to teaching, how, how much I've loved it and how much it's meant to me. So it kind of, you know, got in the front of the line that way. And then um, somehow whenever my mind would turn to it, I'd be really happy because I kind of felt like maybe after that, all that touring and, and yapping, uh, I needed a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little moment back in the woodshed just to kind of like touch base with the, the love of it, you know, and try to kind of reconfigure my head a little bit. So it would turn out to be kind of a two-year, um, almost like a meditative pause in the writing process just to see, you know, like, did I want to keep doing this or not? Which it turns out I did, but... <laughs> <laughs> How did you uh, choose these particular stories? I mean, I guess you you were teaching them, but I guess my question is, why did you decide to teach these particular Russian stories to, to your students and now to everybody who reads this book? Yeah, again, in the beginning, it was just, you know, like my whole teaching career has been kind of like... I'm writing a book. We've got kids. Uh-oh, class is coming up. What should I do? You know, so in this case, it was the first time I'd really taught a big group of grad <laughs> students. So I just been reading Tolstoy and I thought, you know, I'd like to get better acquainted with these Russians. I'll just assign some of them, even stories I hadn't read before. So that was back in 97. And then over the 20 years, I've taught it maybe eight or nine or 10 times. And every time it's fun. It's uh, it's kind of a hit. And uh, there was about 15 stories that always teach well, you know, sometimes because they're really good, sometimes because the kids hate them. But um, so I started with those 15. <laughs> and then it became clear that if we were going to include the stories in the book, which I thought was really important, then it had to be seven or eight 
And then it became a bit of a Rubik's Cube, just which stories um, presented certain lessons at the right time and place, just kind of arranging and rearranging. So there are, there are stories that I actually like more than these that maybe are even better, but just didn't fit into the sort of teaching uh, plan. Was there something in the water in Russia in the 19th century that <laughs> all these sort of masterpieces were being written? I think cyanide, for sure, was definitely, you know, some iron. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 you're sure. exactly right. There's something very amazing about these stories. And I, I, I've been, I, Mary Carr uh, the other day said she thought that it was a little bit like um, that period in Russian literature was kind of like the late 60s were in rock and roll. Like just somehow the form was figuring out what it mm. was and all the talented young people gravitated toward it. It was the most, spun, you know, sort of natural mode of expression, the most admired. Um, so I think it was something like that. And um, maybe because the story form was so new, it just naturally molded itself to that national consciousness, which was so uh, turbulent at that point. You know, they had a, a, a dictatorship and they had a lot of undercurrents of, of revolution that were then fought back. And uh, so I think it was just a really ripe, really ripe time. For my purposes, they're so simple. The stories are kind of simple. And I think sometimes it might be that mm. they're so far away from us now. You know, there's no modern accoutrements in it. It's just sort of a world that's long gone, which maybe helps us uh, see the stories as aesthetic objects a little simpler. They don't have the internet. They don't have um, anything that we would recognize as contemporary politics to distract or confuse us. It's just kind of people in sleds, you know, with no phones. Uh, so in some ways, just maybe just <laughs> sort of right. elemental. <laughs> this is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to George Saunders. Uh, his latest book is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. George, there were so many moments in this book where you really – introduced a new way of thinking about storytelling for me, uh, including this kind of juggling analogy, which I don't know if you invented that or if that's sort of well-known. I've just never been to grad school for writing, but can you kind of explain that to the people listening? Yeah, at this point, I don't know what I invented and what I stole from students, but the, just the <laughs> idea that really a story, you could think of it as, um, you know, the storyteller throws some bowling pins in the air, you know, or bowling balls or apples, whatever, and then... Um, you know, the, the reader notices those things going up. We notice those things being put into play. And then really the whole story is just that feeling of suspense of whether or not the, the, uh, they'll come down and whether or not the, the writer will catch them. So a bad story would be one where six things go into the air and only one come down. Uh, or they all come <laughs> down and he, you know, he or she fumbles the catch. But it, it, that's, uh, there's a lot of metaphors in the, in the book, and really none of them are true or correct. They're just supposed to be helpful. But this one's helpful to me because it sort of makes it a little more like entertainment. You know, you're just, you're just out there doing something. You're dancing. You do certain moves. The audience notices, and they wait for the recursion of that move maybe. Um, I'm always looking for ways of thinking about writing that demystifies it and makes it less sort of intellectually foreboding, you know. That's one of the things that I loved about this book so much is maybe not even thinking about your students at Syracuse, but the general readers of this book. It gives them so much license to just experience these things that might be kind of cordoned off. Like, I, what, I can't remember the exact name of it. Is it the things I couldn't help but noticing hmm. cart, <laughs> which is like your ultimate tool when you're reading a short story? Could you tell us a little bit about, about that as like a, a way of reading and absorbing these, these pieces? Sure. And, and again, all of this is just crap that I made up over the years that seemed to land. You know, there's no, this is not, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> rules or anything. Okay. So say, for example, you're reading a story and you notice that the character has a habit that we sometimes see in salespeople of obsessively repeating the name of the person to whom she's speaking. So she's <laughs> like, 
Uh, Elena, you know, it's a really nice day here, Elena. I'm sure, Elena, that you've noticed. Well, okay, so now you might, that might have gotten in there just because you were being a little sloppy. But once it's in there, it becomes a thing. It becomes a thing you couldn't help noticing if you're the reader. So the writer's job then is to capitalize on it somehow. You know, notice it, uh, bless it, and then capitalize on it if she chooses to leave it in there. And so my thing is that part of our satisfaction at the end of the story is that all these little, maybe hundreds of things that we notice along the way that are a little excessive, a little off, a little chosen, um, that somehow or another, hopefully in a complex way, they, they come home to land. That, that's, you know, that's really the work of art. You do something, you notice you did it, and you sort of, in a certain way, you go, yeah, I meant to do that. You, you, you didn't make it to purpose. So, um, hmm. yeah. And again, the only reason I, these ideas are, are fun for me is that they, they lessen my anxiety as a creative person. You know, those of us who want to be artists, and there's so many people who want to be artists, it's so hard and it's so mysterious and it's not really true that everybody can do it beautifully. You know, there's, there are people who can't, and even those of us who can do it, can't do it reliably. So that makes us hungry for some kind of certainty, i.e. a system of rules. And then the educational system comes in and offers to give it to us. But the hardest thing is to keep humble and arrogant at the same time to say, this is so hard that there can be no rules mm. except the ones for me on this specific day, which are going to go away tomorrow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, we're talking to George Saunders about his latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. This is Livewire. Um, lest uh, people think that that this book is just about maybe deconstructing or understanding, you know, Russian short stories or, 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 or storytelling in general, I think you make the case that there's a certain political element to understanding how to read uh, a story, particularly in the moment that we are living in. Where, where information is coming at us sort of fast and furious and it's, it's, it's really hard to know what to believe and not believe. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, you look at the information where most of us are getting, uh, it's, it's sur surface, as we used to say in geology school, surficial, it's surficial. Uh, it's got a, an agenda built right into mm -hmm. it, most of it. And even when it doesn't, the, the, uh, the corporate conduit that is coming through is shaping it for us, you know, whether by limiting our characters or kind of bringing out a certain performative streak in us. Uh, and you contrast that with these stories, which were mm -hmm. written over a long period of time by somebody relatively disinterested, except in these big questions, and, and maybe more specifically interested in making their characters be uh, realistic and, and human. So I think what it can do is it can, it can show us uh, in capsule form First of all, the way our minds tend to work, which is that we, you know, we're walking down the street, somebody's coming toward us, our mind gives us a spot judgment before we even want it. It just tells us what to think of that person based on who knows what. So in real life, we walk by and that person is whatever we just thought she was. In literary world, we get to sort of spin on our heels and follow that person. And the, if the writer is good, as these are, they give us this little superpower, which is to propel us right into the head of that person. And, and we, we follow the thoughts and the little insecurities and the little itches under their armpits and so on. And before long, six pages later, we're almost indistinguishable from that person. So in other words, we've grown some empathy for them. Uh, and even if they're a kind of rotten person, we're there inside them and we, we're invested. So I think people can do that on their own, of course. I mean, that's what we, we try to do. But literature gives us a little crash course in that kind of, of, of empathy. Um, and what happens, at least to me when I read these stories, is you're in there, you're not free of judgment. You still have your opinion. If the person does something reprehensible, you notice it. But somehow you learn that you can abide a little longer than you thought. You know, you, you, didn't, you don't have to make the spot judgment. You can, but 
it, it doesn't really do much good. You can abide there a lot longer and your decisions, such as they have to be, get um, more precise. And I would say that the ability to make mm-hmm. a more precise decision later in the show might be exactly equal to what we call compassion. <laughs> this is probably a hard question for you to answer, George, because it's trying to, I don't know, sum up something uh, inimitable about you as a writer and as a teacher of writing. But you mentioned your background in geology and, and you had a whole life going that wasn't about writing, really. Has that helped make your teaching and your way of teaching really accessible? Because as a non-literary person, I read this book and I just, I felt invited into the whole process. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I always notice about you when I hear you being interviewed, when I read your stuff, it's, it's very accessible, Mm -hmm. even though it's about a lot of stuff that could be very sort of ethereal. Um, Would you say that's something that you are able to bring to the table? That that question makes me really happy, Luke. Thank you. I, I, I totally agree with you. My thought is that, you know, art, in our time, somehow it's gotten this bad rap for being the thing that the nerds do. You know, the elitists go over there and, <laughs> you know, perform this inscrutable dance, you know. Uh, and then afterwards, they talk about it with their berets on and all that. But, but really, you know, from the very beginning of time, art came about because we don't know what's going on down here. And we're, and we're mostly scared. So around the campfire, people said, ah, and they made, and they probably told stories of their day. And then they figured out to tell <laughs> metaphorical, exaggerated stories of things um, that they could imagine. And that was, uh, it had a function. It, it served a purpose. It still does, you know. I mean, like during this pandemic, who hasn't been reminded that we don't really know what's going on and that we're not at all in control of our phenomenon? Everybody's been reminded of that. So I think art shouldn't be inaccessible to anybody. You know, even if it's difficult, part of a culture's job is to teach our young people how to de- decipher difficult but necessary texts. That, that's called being a human being, you know. But it's not this kind of like, you know, niche thing that we do to show off. It's essential. So I, I, I can say I've gone along that path myself in my life. So yes, I'm very, very sympathetic to anybody who is put off by contemporary art. And I'm very, very eager to say, come on, this tent is really fun. It's really fun in here. And it's going to answer all the questions that (laughs) keep you up at night, or at least help you ask the questions that keep you up at night. I'm a big believer in making it easy, you know? I mean, this idea that you put forward in this book of like the job of a writer is just to keep the interest of the the reader from sentence to sentence, you know, is there enough of interest for the reader in this sentence that they want to just go to the next sentence with you? I mean, that's about as basic as it gets, but I'd never thought of it in that way. Yeah. And it's totally, you know, it's so workable if you think about it, because we do that all the time. You know, we go out to lunch with somebody and if they start, you know, checking their phone too much, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, something's got to, I've got to, I've got to do something here. And so... (laughs) It, 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 it's a basically a model. Yeah, leave. Yeah, leave. Or, you know, or spill water on them. There you go. Now you're talking. Uh, but, I mean, the, the thing is, in, in, in that model, there's a lot of power because you say whatever human moment you find yourself in, whether you're in a, a story, writing a story or re- reading one, or at dinner or at a wedding or whatever, you, it's kind of a simple process, which is first you notice the state of things, you know. Am I energetically engaged with this other person? Am I, am I with her? And then if not, there are some resources that you have to engage her. Part of it is just noticing the quality of the disengagement, you know. Oh, I've been talking about myself for six hours. Hmm, hmm. Mm. You know, maybe I should ask about her. So, <laughs> so to me, that's a really hopeful, 
you know, kind of a hopeful thing because it says that the whole point of literature and life is connection by way of uh, mutual alertness, something like that, you know. And what I love about writing is that, that that's very abstract. And if somebody said, hey, George, you know, try to, try to have connection by being mutually alert, you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll try. But in writing, it gives you every day a line-by-line a line-by-line tutorial on that, you know? You write your sentence and you go, I wonder if my good friend who I haven't met yet, my reader, would still be with me, you know? And if not, then you go, why not? Which is often a kind of a mirror into your, you, you know, into your particular form of not being alert, I guess. You um, uh, teach at this program at Syracuse that famously has a lot of applicants every year and only a very small fraction of those applicants can be admitted to the program. I have to say, though, uh, uh, reading this book, I felt kind of like I was in the program. If I were to tell people that I studied under George Saunders, <laughs> yeah. now that I've read this book, would you, I mean, would that be okay with you, George? And also, yeah. could you not correct the record if someone says, oh, you taught Luke Burbank? No, basically, just, just memorize two or three of my folksy aphorisms and I'll send you a certificate and you're, all, you're good. You're <laughs> <laughs> well, for the, the, the thousands of us who will never make our way into that MFA program, I'm going to say this is a pretty decent uh, <laughs> auditing of the course. Uh, the book is, is really incredible. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. George, thank you so much for coming back on Livewire. I will do it anytime. You guys are so amazing. Thank you so much for what you do. That was George Saunders right here on the Livewire House Party. What a mensch. His latest book is, and I'm going to read the full title. It's kind of long, but A Swim in a Pond in the Rain in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. When you're George Saunders, you get to name your book whatever you want. I Heck think that's the yeah. takeaway from that. <laughs> it's like a Fiona Apple album. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to tell you before we move on that, uh, I mean, you just uh-huh. heard what a wonderful man George Saunders is. And here at the grad program where I teach, where he does not teach, he had a huge hmm. fan in one of our students a couple of years ago. And our students get one reading a year where they read for all their peers and members of the community downtown at this little coffee shop. And another student introduces the reader. And that student knew how much the reader loved George Saunders. And she just cold emailed George Saunders out in Syracuse and said, do you have a pep talk that I could give as my introduction for your biggest fan? And George Saunders, he wrote a paragraph for this complete stranger student to read out loud in order to make another student's day on the day of her reading. Oh, Because that is how magical a menschy kind of guy George Saunders is. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's like I'm trying to learn I'm trying to learn how to shoot free throws. Uh could somebody email Michael Jordan and ask yeah. him for some tips? <laughs> like that's the person you want to have yeah. hyping you up when you're doing anything kind of literary. All right, we got to take a quick break here on the Livewire House Party, but don't go anywhere cuz when we get back we're going to hear some music from Gillette Johnson that you definitely do not want to miss. So stay with us. It's the Livewire House Party. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with our announcer, Elena Passarello. 
Uh, we are talking about writing on the show this week, and our musical guest began writing her own songs at the age of eight. Uh, by her teens, she was playing her music all over New York City. Uh, and since then, she has turned down an offer to appear on The Voice, uh, <laughs> released three albums, including her latest, which is It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You. Let's welcome Gillette Johnson to the Livewire House Party. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, what song are we going to hear? And what can you tell us about it? So the song's called I Shouldn't Go Anywhere. And um, I wrote it before the pandemic. Mm. But then I put it out in July, and it made a different kind of sense than when I wrote it. <laughs> you also wrote a song called Mask Up back in 2014, <laughs> which no one could have known how prescient that was. <laughs> yeah. I do see, by the way, you're selling masks on your merch site with the name of the album on there, which is very clever, actually. Oh, thank you. Well, the, the album is called It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You, and I just feel like if you can't show people you're smiling... That's an okay thing to say. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of interrupted you, though. Can you tell us anything else about this song and, and, and sort of how it came about? Yeah, I wrote it about feeling a little bit insecure and like a fish out of water. It was It's a self-deprecating song a bit uh, <laughs> that the line, I shouldn't go anywhere, really is like me. You know, when, when you're at a party and you say something to someone that you don't know very well and then you see their eyes kind of change and then you feel really <laughs> uncomfortable and then you carry it with you for the rest of the night and then you can't wait to get home. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it intrusively revisits you for the next 10 to 20 years? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you're among friends, Gillette. All um, right, cool. And we're excited to hear this. Uh, this is Gillette Johnson here on the Livewire House Party. just gets me more upset and it makes me feel pathetic with my glassy eyes I think I can see inside pierce the wall find the goal but it's just the
That was Gillette Johnson. Her latest album is It's a Beautiful Day and I Love You, which I just feel like it's always the right time for that message. Yeah. It's always the right time to hear that. <laughs> yeah, amen. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be ringing in the new year with some real dynamite guests. We're going to be talking to David Duchovny, Woo. you know, Mulder from the X-Files. Yes. He's also a writer, and he uh, writes all kinds of fiction, and we're going to talk to him about that. We're also going to be practicing some jump roping. This is a very active radio show. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we'll jump rope on the air if we need to, to entertain and inform the listeners. Yeah. Uh, we're also going to hear some incredible music from a, a new musician who is really making a name for herself, Jensen McCray. So do not miss next week's episode of Livewire. As far as this one goes, we're pretty much done with it. A big thanks to our guests, Talib Kweli, George Saunders, and Gillette Johnson. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Suzanne and Matt Dixon of right here in Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 